Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that, uh, that you would be glorified as we're turning to it now, that we would uh, glean what you want us to hear, that our hearts would be receptive. So please be, uh, be worshipped now in how we respect your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So uh, we are almost done with overviewing the entire Bible in just about a year. And tonight we find ourselves in the book of James. James is, uh, is an interesting book, and you know we've said it before a couple dozen times this year, we'll say it again, and that is that there's, it's impossible to unpack the book of James in 45 minutes. It just can't be done. Um, there's too much richness, there's too much depth, and so we're not going to sufficiently unpack it tonight. What we're going to do is look at an overview to try and then help give a framework so that as you're going back on your own and going into the Word and saying, okay, I want to come to the Word of God personally and see how it applies to my life, so that then hopefully there's a little bit of a, you can sort of hit the ground running in that, in that time. Because what happens on a Wednesday night, what happens on a Sunday morning, they're great things, but they're a great addition to what needs to happen in your personal life, in your private life. They are not a supplement. Right? Your worship of God in public needs to be a reflection of your worship of God in private. And your relationship, your attention to his word in public should be a reflection of what it is in private. It shouldn't be the opposite, where it's making up for lost ground. It should be, this is a natural occurrence. This is a natural uh, reflection on the state of my heart. And so that's what we're doing tonight. We're, we're just unpacking some of the basic ideas of the book of James and we're going to see just a ton of application for us. Uh, James is, is, is probably the most actionable book in Scripture. Uh, it's probably the book more so than any other where you can walk away from it saying, okay, I've got something I can do now, right? And, and I love that the Scripture gives us this whole realm of ideas of how we relate to Christianity. You know, we were, we were in Hebrews last week, and Hebrews is... A phenomenal book, but it deals a lot more with sort of the principles of Christianity and understanding why is Jesus Christ better than the Old Testament? Why is Jesus better than, a, than having to sacrifice an animal every time you sin? Why is Jesus sufficient? Romans deals with, okay, what is the gospel and what does it mean that Jesus Christ came to save me and, and who then uh, am I as a sinner? Who am I as a person who's been saved? And, and they're phenomenal books that are super important to how we understand our relationship with the Lord. But sometimes you come to the Word of God and you're like, I just need to know what to do right now. I need just like, you know, steps one and steps, you know, A, maybe B and C, but I can't take much more than that. I just need like something to do. And James will give you that. It is, it is uh, James, if you read to the book of James and you don't walk away with something that you need to do, then you are reading it with your eyes closed. Because James is just going to lay out, boom, 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 boom. James is starting his book with the assumption that you're in a walk with, in a relationship with the Lord. He doesn't really spend any time explaining Christianity. He doesn't spend a lot of time. He's not dealing with apologetics issues. Not that those things aren't important. Those things are important. But James is writing a book for people who want to know what they need to do right now. And so James just is immensely practical. It's a call to action. And what James is going to do in this book is he's going to call us to do good works as Christians. And we've said it over and over again. Uh, 
We are not saved by works as Christians. And James himself, we even pause in this book to make that point. But we're not saved by our works. There's nothing you can do to approach the holiness of God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, to make you any more perfected in the eyes of God than the moment when you say, God, I want to receive your son into my life. And in that moment, you are fully holy. You are fully saved. God has completely transformed your life. And so you could say, well, then why do I need to worry about my conduct? I'm already saved and, and I'm already, you know, I'm on my way to heaven. And you are correct in that you are saved. And we see, you know, in Scripture, we even see the example of the thief on the cross. He never had a chance to do a single good work after becoming a Christian. He got saved and died. And Jesus still promised him eternal life. And so it's not, we're not necessarily talking about salvation, but James is going to talk about works are uh, for fruitfulness and effectiveness in life and in ministry. And especially if you want to walk with the Lord long term, if you want to be faithful in your walk with the Lord, James is going to outline for us there are things you need to be doing. There are practical steps you need to take in your life. If you guys are reading the Through the Bible in a Year plan that we're doing, uh, today was, was Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, God is talking to the man Philip. He says, Philip, I want you to go down to this road. And the commentary just pauses to say, it's a road in the desert. And Philip gets up and goes. He does the work that God calls him to do. And then he sees a chariot going by. And the Lord says, go catch up with that chariot. And he does. And then he sees an Ethiopian man reading a passage out of Isaiah. And he takes the opportunity and the man becomes saved. But it's a great picture for us of how obedience works in in life. Because the Lord does not give us an entire roadmap. The Lord says, here's your next step. And then we obey that. And he says, okay, here's the next step. And you obey that. And he says, here's the next step. Because if he gave us the entire plan, we would just kind of find ourselves saying, well, that's impossible. There's no way I could do that. There's no way God could do that. I'm just not even going to start. And so he gives us one step at a time. And so doing good works, as James is going to call us to, is not, has nothing to do with your salvation. But it does have to do with the continuation of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to do with, are you going to bear fruit? Are you, you know, you, your works cannot save you, but there is a principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit of God, you're going to reap everlasting life. You're going to reap a richer life here and now. And so what James is going to do, he's going to call us to works. He's going to call us to do things grounded in an awareness of what Jesus has already done. Okay? So he's, he's starting this book off with the assumption that you've already, in a, in a sense, um, you know, James is actually probably one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, but it's as if he's writing this book with the assumption that you've already read Romans, with the assumption that you understand what the gospel is, and now your question is, what do I do about it? And if you're trying to figure out, what do I need to do about the gospel? What do I do with the fact that Jesus Christ came and saved me? Then James is your go-to manual. So, um, so chapter 1, uh, we're going to try and read as much of the book of James as we can tonight, but we're going to have to skip over some parts. But chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, all right, what's the first thing you should do? Well, when you're going through hard times, you should rejoice in it. And you think, couldn't you have like, warmed us up with something, you know, like, 
something a little tamer than that. Like, no, you're going through a hard time. You need to rejoice in it. And James is writing uh, largely to the Jewish believers at this time and understand culturally where these people are at. Because in the first century, to convert to Judaism meant you could lose your job and meant all your property could be confiscated and meant your wife could divorce you in a culture where women really couldn't divorce men. Um, she could leave you and marry pretty much whoever she wanted. You could legitimately lose everything you had for becoming a Christian. And so James knows he's not writing to people in a cushy life. And so he's not going to try and warm them up and give them this soft sell on Christianity. James is saying, look, life is hard. Rejoice in it. Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. God is teaching you something. And, and he's going to talk about you know, your trials that you're going through. There is a difference between trials and consequences. Consequences is when you're an idiot and there's a result of that, right? That's not really what James is talking about. Trials are just doing life, trying to serve the Lord, and hard things happen. And that's a reality that we all live with. And in those trials, you, he's saying, you got to understand, the Lord is doing something. The Lord is wanting to accomplish something in your life through this. God never wastes a moment or an opportunity. And so he says, count it all joy. And you say, I don't really know how. Right? Like, okay, I can, I can theoretically get that God is going to do something with this. I'm having a really hard time grasping it. Well, he launches into verse 5 of chapter 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He says, okay, if you're, having, if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around the wisdom of, like, okay, I understand that maybe God wants to do something through this trial, but I'm just not, I do not have the wisdom to grasp how he's going to do it. What does James say? Ask, and you'll, get, and you'll receive it. If you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. James is going to spend a lot of time in this book talking about wisdom. And the base assumption of wisdom is if you lack it, ask for it. And if you ask for it, God will give it. It's a promise in Scripture that if you ask for wisdom, God will give you wisdom. Now he goes on, though. He says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. And he's not saying here that if you're wrestling to believe that your prayers are all discounted. But what he's saying is sometimes we can pray and there's a sense of, you know, God, I'm going to ask you for this, but I know you're not going to do it. I know. I'm asking you for the sake of when somebody says, have you prayed about it? I can say, yes, I prayed about it, right? Um, you know, in our growing up, um, if you were going to tell your mom that your sibling was being a pain, a pretty standard question would be, well, have you prayed for them yet, right? So you tell them, I'm going to go tell mom. Dear God, bless my brother. Okay, mom, here's the deal. Um, and, and there wasn't really a lot of like, there wasn't a lot of faith in that prayer, right? And so that's what, kind of where James is going. James is going to talk a lot about prayer, and we'll get into it more later on. But he's saying, if you lack wisdom, ask. But ask as if God is capable of it. Ask as if God is actually able to give you the wisdom in the trial that you're in. And that's a legitimate, and that can be a legitimate challenge. So he's not saying if this is hard for you to wrap your heads around, God automatically won't give it to you. He's saying, understand that God wants to give this to you. So don't walk up, to, don't, don't ask God for wisdom and then just say, you know, never mind, I'll, I'll do it myself. Ask God for wisdom and then let him give you his wisdom. Um, so now, in the context of that, 
as we're kind of jumping through the rest of chapter one here, there's just a handful of verses that are, that are worth capturing in chapter one. Uh, and really they all are, but for the sake of time. Chapter one, verse 12, he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's a blessing waiting for you if you persevere through the trial. There is a reward on the other side of that trial. So don't discount the trials that God lets you go through. It doesn't mean you have to like them. That doesn't mean they have to be fun. But don't waste your life whining about them because God wants to do a work through them. Chapter one, verse 17, he says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Every good thing in your life right now is from the Lord. And sometimes if you're in a trial, the most effective thing you can do is back up and say, okay, what are some things that, that I need to remember that I should be thankful for? And because oftentimes uh, we're not that stellar at being thankful. But every good thing in your life is from God. That's a lot of things. Now, we don't usually think of them all. We don't, we don't usually itemize them, right? But you happen to live on a planet that, as far as we know, is the only rock in the entire cosmos that is actually capable of supporting life. Isn't that fascinating? You happen to live in a place that is designed to actually be the perfect temperature for your body to survive. And it's wintertime right now, so we don't appreciate it all that much. But if our, if our Earth was just a little bit closer or a little bit farther from the sun that we go around, nobody would be alive on this planet. We happen to live in a planet that has actually been colored in, right? God designed our world, and then he decided to color it in, and then he decided to give it texture, and then on top of that, he decided to give it sound effects, right? He didn't have to put any sound in the world, but he decided to for kicks. And, and so, you know, every good thing in your life is from the Lord. And if you're in the middle of a trial, you gotta back up and say, okay, that does not make the, that, you know, this is still a real trial. The Bible never has this idea that, uh, you can just enlighten yourself to where your trials aren't real. But there is a point where you can say, I am going to choose to focus on what God is doing. And so every good gift is from above. Uh, verse 19, he says, this you know, my beloved brethren. So he's, you know, it's sort of instinctive. You know that God is good, even if you have a hard time remembering it. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If you want something practical to do as a response to Christianity, here you go. This is, this is pretty top of the line. What should I do today? Well, here's what you should do today. You should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Slow down your temper, slow down your tongue, speed up your ears. And he says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Doing your own thing in your own strength is not gonna make you any more righteous. That's not gonna help the righteousness of God shine forth in your life or through your life or to the lives of the people around you. He says, verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So I wanna be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, but how do I do that? Well, you probably start by asking for wisdom. But then, what do you do? Put aside filthiness and in humility, receive the word and be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer. If you wanna learn how to apply the truths that James is gonna tell you, you can do it by reading the word and then doing the word. 
He goes on in, in verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Two things. To visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is about the most comprehensive statement you can get on what does effective Christianity look like. It's really fascinating that, that God would distill it down to that. Right? You take care of widows and orphans and you keep yourself from getting uh, polluted by the world. God has a huge heart for widows and orphans. Huge heart. And in our culture, that, that very much includes, you know, people whose, whose man or whose father has abandoned them. Okay? So God's got a huge heart for single moms, for kids without a dad. He takes that incredibly seriously. And if you want to be an effective minister of the gospel, you should take it seriously. And if you want to know what do I do, you take that seriously. What else do you do? You keep yourself unstained by the world. It is really hard to walk in the filth of the world and walk in the righteousness of Christ at the same time. It's impossible. And so if you want to be effective in what God is calling you to do, not, again, to make you saved, because God has already saved you. God saved you. You're not going to save yourself. But because God has saved you, James is going to say the only appropriate response we can do, the only appropriate response we can possibly muster is to do the works that he's calling us to do. So if you want to know what's like, what's the most like pure form of serving the Lord? Visit widows and orphans and keep yourself unspotted from the world. In chapter two, James is going to jump, James jumps actually quite a bit. Um, But he's going to start talking about in your church, don't show partiality. When people come in the doors at your church, if they are rich or poor, you should be treating them the same way. And he says, by the way, the rich people are causing most of your problems in life. So don't give the rich people like special favors. He says, uh, he says, aren't they the ones who've oppressed you and personally drag you into court, right? Most of our problems in this world right now are not from poor people stealing our money, right? Most of our problems, or our hassles anyway, at the very least, come from rich people taking our money through legal means, usually called taxes, right? That's, I mean, truth be told, the, the challenges that people find themselves frustrated with in our current government system are that you have rich people who have a hard time really giving a rip about normal people. And that's a pretty universal party statement. So it doesn't matter where you like to put yourself politically. That's what we've got. We've got rich people being selfish, by and large. And so he says, don't show partiality to rich people. Rich man comes into your church. Who cares? He's a man who needs the gospel. He's at verse eight of chapter two, he says, if however you're fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So if a rich person comes into church and they receive the gospel, that's awesome. Fantastic. If a poor person comes into church and receives the gospel, that's awesome. Fantastic. There shouldn't be a differentiation between who's making how much money in your church and how much of a chance they get to respond to the gospel. You're saying that's no. But verse nine, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He's going to start shifting gears again. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it all. He says, if you show partiality to a rich person in your life, that's a sin, and that's equivalent to breaking the law of God. Verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. He's saying here, you understand the way the law of God works. God's law is not graded on a curve. And so 
he's kind of jumping here back to the idea of if you're saved by your works, you need to understand. Or if you're trying to be saved by your works, you need to understand if you make one mistake, you blew the entire thing. Works are not percentage-based, right? It's a pass-fail test. If you have let out one complaint in your life, you failed. If you have told one lie or taken one thing that wasn't yours rightfully, you have failed. The law judges you. And in the eyes of the law, you're guilty. So he's saying, showing partiality is a big deal. It's a sin. And it, and it will separate you from God. Now he says, therefore, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's giving us a warning here. He's saying, you know, right in the middle of this book, in the middle of it, he's told us about works to do. In the first two chapters, he's going to tell us about works we should do. In the last few chapters, he's saying, now, remember, speak and act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. You're set free in Jesus Christ. And that should impact the way you talk. That should impact the way you act. And he's, what he's saying here is, you know, he's basically saying, we're going to talk a lot about works here tonight. But understand what we're talking about. We're not talking about doing works to be saved. We're talking about doing works because you're saved. You are now free to do good works. And it's not usually how we think of freedom, right? Like, I don't think of it like, I am free to drive the speed limit. Yeah, <laughs> right? I am free to pay my taxes. I am free to not run a red light. Therefore, I'm not going to run a red, red light because I have the liberty to not do it. We usually talk about liberty in terms of the things we can do and not get caught for. Or, not, or things we can get away with. James is saying, you are free to do good works. You have liberty. And so this is not about judgment. This is not about you get a past condemnation on, well, you didn't do as many good works as I did this week. This is about the mercy of God has set you free. And so you have no right to now go judging other people based on their works. And so he's just kind of pausing for a second. But he says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Jesus said, with the measure you use, it's going to be measured back to you. And in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. So we need to be very, very, very careful that we are not judging people and, and assigning them a grade in our mind of how we think God sees them. Right? And he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 13. Now, that does not mean that judgment is worthless, right? Justice, judgment, they are important. They're critical. It's important that we have an understanding of them, okay? But James has just given us a practical admonition here. If you're going to make a hard call on somebody, you're better off erring on the side of mercy. That doesn't mean you never have to draw a line in the sand, but that means before you just burn the bridge, bear in mind, Mercy's pretty awesome, okay? So he's going to go on, verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? He's carrying that idea of you are at liberty to do good works. So what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And he's asking a question that it's really interesting for us to watch because he's going to jump down now here in verse... Um, 21 of chapter 2, and he's going to go back to the story of Abraham. And so we're going to read 
uh, the next few verses, and then we'll go back and talk about them. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this verse in Genesis that he's referencing here is one of the key verses for how Christians understand the gospel. It's how we understand salvation. And Paul elaborates on this in Romans. Uh, this comes up a couple times in the New Testament where in Genesis, before the Old Testament law has been laid down, before there are the rules and regulations in the Old Testament of here's how you come to God, we're told Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith and his faith made him righteous. And Paul uses that to point out to us that we're saved by believing in Jesus Christ. By saying, okay, God, I believe that you came down to earth, you lived a perfect life, you died to pay the punishment for my sins that I deserved, you rose again to demonstrate that not only had you paid the debt, but you also conquered the debt, and now you're in victory and you're offering to give me that same life. I want to receive that life. When you believe that, you're made righteous. And you're saved by your faith. But James just makes a point here. He says, okay, so Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. When do we know that Abraham believed God? The text tells us in Genesis. But it goes on. You know, the story of Abraham goes on and you kind of, as the reader, you're like, well, well, and it said he believes God, but he just got impregnated an Egyptian woman to try and create another heir. That doesn't really seem like he believes God. I don't know. I mean, he says he does, but, well, it seems like he's having a hard time believing that God's going to bring his son. He's kind of waiting around. When do we know that Abraham believed God? When do we get to see it lived out. It's when God says, Abraham, sacrifice your son. And Abraham says, okay. When Abraham's at the bottom of the mountain with Isaac and the servants, he tells the servants, wait here. The boy and I are going to go up and sacrifice and we're going to come back. Abraham is living out a faith that God has made a promise and God is going to keep a promise. And it is when he acts out those works that he demonstrates. James says that he fulfills that scripture. And so James is, he's being very clear here. Faith without works is not real faith. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not faith. If you truly believe something, it forces an action. If you could truly convince me that there is a $5 billion treasure buried in, in our backyard, I will rent the backup. But if I'm not convinced, I'm not going to spend whatever it is, 350 bucks a week, to rent a backhoe to dig for something that I don't think is there. Right? But if there's $5 billion there, $350 for a week's worth of digging is a very good investment. I'm going to do it. Right? But if I'm convinced, there's going to be an action. If I am not convinced, it doesn't matter if I, you know, I could tell everybody in this church that there's a, there's a massive treasure buried in our backyard. And I know exactly where it's at. I know right, I know the exact spot. I even know how much money is, is, it's worth. Have you ever gone and dug it up? No, no. I will one of these days. 
I'll get to it. I'm waiting for them to run a special on backhoes for the week. Like, there's, there's no, if there's no action to back it up, James is just making the point here, if there's nothing backing up what you're saying, then really what you're saying is empty. And so James, again, he's not saying that we're saved by our works, but he's saying the only appropriate response to faith in Christ is to let the works follow and to live a life of works, um, of good works in submission to the Lord. Chapter three, he's gonna give us, so he kind of is, he's given us some things to do, and now he's gonna give us some things not to do and some things to do. He's gonna just keep laying them on. So chapter three, um, he's gonna go, so he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such will incur a stricter judgment. That's a scary verse for anybody who teaches the word. And, and it's, it's important to take it seriously. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, He's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits in the horse's mouth so they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. He's saying, you can, you can steer a massive animal with a piece of metal that's not much bigger than my finger. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. I mean, you watch, you know, the pilot of a ship, you know, kind of, he gets his wheel and whole ship turns. And that's not a lot of like, you know, physical effort, but he can steer an incredibly massive piece of equipment by doing that. He's saying there's something, you know, something small can drive something big. And he's talking, he's going to start talking about, this is the power of our words. Verse five, so also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. It's the very world of iniquity. He's he's now kind of tying it back in when he said, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Why should you be slow to speak? Because your tongue is trying to ruin your life. Your mouth is evil, and you need to live with that awareness. He says, um, the tongue is set, verse 6, among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it's set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the tongue, but no one can, by the, I'm sorry, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one, verse 8, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. He said, you need to understand what's a, what's a practical thing to do. What do I do because I'm a Christian? Watch your mouth. Be careful with what you say. Once you say something, you know, words are not physical, right? And they, I mean, if you can get into sound waves and whatever, you could get overly technical. But words are not physical. When I say something, None of us have the, uh, the sensory ability to actually feel what I'm saying. But your words can physically hurt somebody. You can say something that will make someone physically sick because of how hurtful it is. You can say something that will make someone physically angry because of how hurtful it is. You can do all kinds of things. And James says, look, we can tame all kinds of animals. Right? I kept thinking all day today, Sarah Holmes, 
sits on that side of church. She taught her cat to sit to get food. I'm like, I don't know what's left to accomplish in life after that. She taught her cat to sit, okay? You can teach a stinking cat to sit. No, nobody can control your own tongue. So, but he says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So you're gonna need some wisdom to control your tongue. You, you're gonna need somebody else's wisdom. You, you're gonna need God's wisdom. So what do you need to do? Ask. Ask. James is gonna tell us to do things and to not do things. And if you look at this and you're like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, Nate Murphy is responsible for not saying anything stupid when Nate Murphy is talking. Guess what? Nate Murphy's in trouble. A lot of trouble, right? But what's he saying? Nate Murphy needs to take responsibility for his own words. He needs to not say anything unnecessarily stupid. So what does he need to do? I'd better ask God for wisdom. I'd better, I'd better keep asking God for wisdom, right? So what do we do? Go back to the Lord. Uh, he goes in verse 13 of chapter three. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. So you're going to ask God for wisdom. And he's going to give it to you. And then you're going to have to sort out, is what I'm about ready to say? Is what I'm about ready to do the wisdom of God or is it something else? And James gives you a guideline here, okay? If there's envy and selfish ambition, that's demonic wisdom. If there's um, pure, peaceable, gentle, merciful, fruitful things coming out, that's God's wisdom. So if you're trying to sort out what's the right thing to do, what's the right thing to say here, if it involves promoting yourself, that's not wisdom from God. If it involves, hey, I just want to be pure, peaceable, gentle, uh, reasonable, or the New King James Version says willing to yield, like, hey, you know what, I, I believe in this, but this is, I'm not driving the ship here. I'm cool with whatever God wants to do here. That's biblical wisdom. So we're shown when he talks about our tongue, how badly we need wisdom, we're told how to ask God for wisdom, and now we're also given a guideline for, are you walking in wisdom? So James has given us all these things to do, but really just ties back around to, go back and ask God, and then watch it in your life roll out, and you'll be able to discern, is this from the Lord or not? Chapter four, he's gonna say, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's carrying this idea. You want some wisdom? Okay, here's, here's something to know. If it involves getting friendly with the world, it's not the wisdom from God. If it's, you know, if you're doing this because you're lusting after something, it's not from God. And he says, you know, even here, 
you ask and don't receive because you ask the wrong motives. If you're asking for the wisdom of God so that you can prove to somebody that you're awesome, you're probably not going to get the wisdom of God in that situation. Right? So he's saying you've got to ask with the appropriate and the right motives. Verse 7. He says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's the summary of walking in victory. You submit to God, you resist the devil, and you draw near to you. And I like that he sticks to resist the devil in the middle. Because you're not going to resist the devil on your own. Willpower is not going to do you anything on its own. But you need willpower to be effective. You need to, you need to have that point where I have submitted to God and now I personally want to walk in holiness because I think it's the only appropriate response to what he's done. So I, I'm still submitting. I'm drawing near to God. I'm, I'm you know, letting God have control. I'm also desperately asking him for wisdom and for his Holy Spirit. But along the way now, I'm going to take a step of obedience. And this is, if you want to know, you know, sometimes we can get way into like, well, what about spiritual warfare? And, and, you know, I know some people love, not love, but are fascinated by like demonic influence and and can people be demon possessed and all this. You know, the answer is to spiritual warfare. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So this is not just like, this is, this principle, submit, resist, draw near, will work in every area of your life. If you live this out, you will get the privilege of being near to the presence of God, having the devil flee from you, and and experiencing that relationship. Verse 9, he's going to say, well, end of verse 8, he says, Cleanse your heart, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He's saying, yeah, submit to God seriously. Let go of your sins. Confess. Take this for real. Right? Don't, don't, don't go around playing games with God. Right? The book of James is written to remind us, don't play games with God. It is, he is way too big and way too holy, and this life is way too short to, to mess around with playing games. So take it seriously. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord lives, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So he's not saying it's wrong to make a plan. It's actually commendable, right? We're called to be good stewards. It's it's very reasonable, very commendable. Take a portion of your paycheck and put it in savings, right? Don't spend more money than you have. There are practical steps to take, but he says don't Tell God what he's going to do with your life. You know, uh, you don't need, you know, it's not wrong to have a five-year plan or whatever, but it is wrong to say, this is my five-year plan, God, and you had better live up to my five-year plan, right? It should be more like, you know, 
if all things are, are equal, I think in five years it'd be kind of cool to be like, kind of in this general vicinity. But you know what? Well, whatever. That's cool. That's, I'll kind of steer that way, but I'm asking the Lord for wisdom. And so if the wisdom of God says something else, that's cool too, right? So don't tell God what to do. And it's okay to be responsible. It's okay to be practical and have a, a good plan in place. He's not saying don't do that, but he's saying just qualify, qualify your own ambitions and say, you know what? If the Lord wills, here's what we're probably going to do. Chapter 5, uh, he jumps off in the beginning and just he's talking to the rich and he says, you know what? Do not put your effort in riches. Do not, and again, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to be a good steward of your money. But it is wrong to say, well, because we got our five-year plan, we know that we're going to grow our interest at this much. We've got this much money coming in the bank, so we're gonna, we can probably spend this much at this point. You, know, you, can, you, can crunch your, you can spend your whole life crunching numbers to make yourself feel good and secure about how rich you are. He says, your riches are worthless. They're going to burn up. Assets dry up, right? Things liquidate. Inflation cuts into your, uh, your ability to spend money. It's like, life happens. Things that are outside your control are going to impact you. So if you're living for riches, that is way too small of a goal. All right? So he's saying, all right, rich people, do not waste your time trying to be rich. Chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. He says, remember guys, count it all joy when you're in a trial. Be patient. God is doing something. The fact that you don't see it does not mean it's not happening. Right? Trees get pruned and they bear more fruit. Fields get plowed and they produce more fruit. Winter happens so that trees bear fruit better. Right? Warm winters make bad summers. It, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a reality of the farming world. You need that hard, deep freeze for, for certain kinds of fruit trees and whatever else to be able to kill off the bugs that are in their root system or whatever else and now have a, a fruitful year. And so you can look and say, oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of winter. There's nothing going on in my life. It's not true. There's these little bugs in your roots that are freezing to death. Right? These little, these little mites and whatever else, God's killing them off one by one. Things are happening. You just might not see it. So he says, be patient. God is doing a work and there will be fruit. You just might not see it right now. Verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. As James is wrapping up the book, he says, all right, guys, you want to know what to do? Pray. If you're suffering, pray. If your life is awesome, then rejoice. And we talked about it when we were in Colossians. Thanksgiving is prayer. Giving thanks to God is an act of prayer. If you want to pray more, start writing down things that you're thankful for. And you will either be praying in thankfulness or you'll be praying that God will help you realize what you need to be thankful for. If you're sick, if you're wrestling with sickness, come to the elders of the church, he says. Let them anoint you with oil and pray for you. And, and you know, there's nothing magic in having a little oil put on your head, but it's a symbol 
right? We take communion as a symbol to remind us of what Jesus did. Because if you're sick, let somebody anoint you with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Holy Spirit has the power to heal you right now. It says in God, God can heal him. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're sick as a trial, God can heal you. If you're sick as a consequence of your own sins, God can forgive your sins in that too. Uh, he says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The end of verse 16. And verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. That verse is like the craziest verse in the Bible to me, right? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So wherever you see yourself in like, you shouldn't try and do this exercise, but if you were to do this exercise of like, what number am I in terms of like awesome Christians, right? Like, you know, maybe Paul's after Jesus. Maybe you got like Paul and Peter are tied for first. And then you got the rest of the disciples. And you got some of the, you know, like Stephen and, and some of the other guys. And you get down to like whatever, number 12 billion and, and, and six. That's probably about where you're at or I'm at. And James says, that's where Elijah's at. Elijah's a man just like you. And he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. And then he prayed again and it did. And if you go back to the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, He's not praying that it won't rain for fun. He's praying that out of a desire to see people come to the Lord. Okay? And this is important. And I think sometimes we can, we can lose sight of this. Okay? But when it comes to prayer, we can, we can sort of wrestle with two extremes, both of which are, I think, unhealthy. Um, but as somebody we know would say, there's a spectrum here. And on one side, you've got people who tell God what to do. Right? God, I am believing for a whatever, a new Corvette or a new something stupid, right? Or I was at a, a prayer group one time and a guy said, God, your honor is on the line if our town doesn't have a revival. And I thought, who do you think you are? Right? You're a human and God's God. So there's a dangerous extreme of telling God what to do. There's another dangerous extreme that I think we don't always appreciate, which is giving God like escape clauses. Like, you know, like, God, I know you're not going to do this. You're probably not going to do this. But just in case you're, like, super bored and have nothing else to do, if you wanted to do this, and you probably won't, here's what you, here's what you could do, right? And so both of those are unhealthy. But I think sometimes we get nervous about going towards telling God what to do because we've seen it abused really publicly. And so we sort of ease back to waffling out in our prayers, Right? And it makes us feel better, like, you know, if God didn't do it, it's because he's got a bigger plan or whatever else. And so here's, so here's the thing that James is trying to tell us. First of all, prayer is way more powerful than any of us realize. He says, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah got to see some of the most incredible acts of God that any person has ever seen. And he's just a dude like us. And so if you're praying, if you're praying for healing or you're praying for a circumstance or a situation, basically be aware of this. Don't tell God what to do. But bear in mind, God chooses to reveal himself to us as a father. He chooses to say, think of it as if I'm your father. And he could have given us a lot of metaphors. He could have, you know, he could have told us different ways to relate to him. 
But he, by and large, wants us to see him as our father. Now, some of us have had good dads, some of us have had bad dads, so sometimes there's a little bit of like, okay, you know, you got to remember that God is the perfect father. But we can sort of at least conceptualize what a father is, okay? God is a good father. He's a perfect father. He's also an all-powerful father. And so understand a couple things. A God who can create the entire cosmos and everything that you know and every, you know, physical and metaphysical and quantum physical realm that we don't even like understand remotely, your biggest problem is not really going to stretch him, right? If I went to dad and I said, dad, I need $10 million right now, that would stretch him, right? Just, just a little bit. Um, but if I were to say, if I need 10 cents and I go to my dad, it's not really going to like make or break the rest of his life, right? It's, it's, it's a dime. But I can, you know, I could go to dad and say, dad, look, I know you're a good dad. I know you're a provider. I know you have all the money in the world. But uh, if I could have 10 cents, I know you don't have to give me 10 cents. And even if you don't, you're still dad. You're still a good dad. I understand. Um, but, you know, if you have 10 cents and it's, and it's an okay thing, the 10 cents would be great. But either way, you know what? If it's your will to give me 10 cents, that's great. If it's not your will, that's fine too. I understand. But the 10 cents would be really appreciated. I'd be super thankful. But I understand you're still dad either way. Sooner or later, dad's going to say, do you want the 10 cents or not? Right? Like, just, just say it. Right? And so, if I say, dad, can I have 10 cents? He's either going to say yes, or he's going to say no. And if he says yes, it's because he's a good dad. If he says no, it's because he's a good dad. He has reasons of his own. So, don't, you know, you don't have to tell God what he has to do. But the scriptures, when they talk about prayer talk an awful lot about praying boldly. Jesus talked about telling a mountain to get cast into the sea, right? And we, we see over and over again these references of like, pray in the belief that God is going to do something. And so I would just encourage all of us, you know, I think it's, it's a, it can be a hard temptation for us to sort of hang out where we give God easy outs and we qualify everything for him. And understand if you're praying in submission to God, it's okay to say, God, please do this in my life. And if he does it, that's phenomenal. If he chooses not to, it's because he has reasons of his own. You don't have to give God his own excuse, right? God is fully capable. If he wants to say no to what you're asking, it's because he knows what he's doing. And he doesn't need you to give him, like, opportunities to get out of this prayer. So ask God boldly. If there's something that you're struggling with or wrestling with, if there is a, a sickness or a situation, ask God to heal it. And then sit back and watch what he does. Right? If, you, if, if, it's not, if you're not asking for something out of selfish ambition or out of lust or whatever else, and you're asking in accordance with the will of God, go for it. Ask him boldly. Ask him again. Pray earnestly. Elijah prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again. And it did rain. And the earth brought forth its fruit. So, just, if you want to know what to do, pray. James starts the book talking about prayer. He just about wraps it up talking about prayer. But then just right at the end, he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So if you want to be an effective you know, doer of the word. If you see somebody starting to stray from the word, it's okay to pull them back. 
and say, hey, you're going down a road with a lot of dead ends, a lot of, you know, a lot of nasty, a lot of nice, nasty stuff at the end of that road. And so he's calling, he calls that, he calls each of us to that, says, hey, there's, there's, it's awesome when you can call somebody back to the Lord. And incidentally, while we're here, while I'm reading it, and this is the situation we have, I need to say that, right? If you're wandering from the Lord, if you're not quite sure, you know, do I really want to serve the Lord? Or do I want to kind of still be doing my own thing? He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot play both games. You're either friends with the world or you're friends with God. So if you are, if you are playing games with God, turn back. Turn around. There is nothing at the end of that road for you, right? By the end of a life of serving the Lord, there is abundance in a way that you cannot fathom. So if, you are, if you're going strong for the Lord, that is awesome. Keep going. Keep being a doer of the word. If you're, if you're straying, come home. Come back to the Lord. He wants to see you do something. He wants to see you recognize what he's done for you. That's the book of James, guys. Next week, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. First and 2 Peter are two of my favorite books of the Bible. I like all 66 an awful lot, but First and 2 Peter are pretty phenomenal. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We want to take what, what James challenged us to do and go for it. God, we are asking for wisdom. We want to see you work in our lives. We want to submit to you. We want to draw near to you. We want to resist the devil. We want to walk in victory, God, not to lay claim to any kind of strength on our own, but because of what you've done. We are free to walk in righteousness, and we want to do that, God. So have your way with us. Go before us. Help us to to just live with, with purpose and vigilance. We thank you for what you've done. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.